0: Um, Will you join with me as we pray before we get started? Our Heavenly Father, it's a good thing for us to be able to sit and to listen to your word, but we confess that too often we grow so familiar with it that we just let it wash over us and it doesn't actually change the way we live. We walk away like that man or woman who looks at their reflection in the mirror and then leaves and forgets what they look like. Please, Father, don't let us be like that. Not today. May today be a day when your word is planted in our minds and our hearts and grows up there with a harvest of salvation and righteousness. And may it all be for your holy name's sake, we pray. Amen. Please keep um, Ephesians uh, open with you. Ephesians 6, we're going to, um, to be looking at that. It's, uh, it, it's interesting. I think all of us have a vested interest in staying alive. That's part of, I think, the way that God created us, that all of us have this desire to hold on to life. And so I think for that reason, the advice of those who live very long lives is often advice that we love listening to. I know I do. I love hearing what very elderly people have to say about what they think is the secret of a long life. I was um, reading some of them the other day and uh, a lady called Jessie Gallon, who in 2015 was the oldest woman in Scotland, she was asked what uh, was the secret to her longevity, how did she manage to live for so long? And she said the secret to a long life was staying away from men. She said they're just more trouble than they're worth. And I thought it'd be worth checking that out and seeing if anyone else agrees with that. So Mabel Jackson, who turned 100, gave credit for her long life to gin and tonic. Uh, She said, I have two gin and tonics at lunchtime, I have another one at tea time with a biscuit, and I have three more during the evening while I do my knitting. Um, I'm quite sure that her doctor hasn't recommended that. Her daughter suggested that the gin may well have been preserving her like a good pickle. Uh, And that's certainly quite possible. Richard Overton, who was an American and reached 112 years of age, said that he had no aches or pains, even at 112, but he said he smoked more than 12 cigars a day, rose at dawn and drank a little whiskey in his morning coffee. And again, I thought, I'm not sure that the medical professionals will like that one. Ruth Benjamin was a little bit better. She turned 109 and she said that the secret to long life was a stable marriage, abstaining from alcohol and eating bacon. Um, I think Richard Overton had the, probably the most useful advice out of all of those. I'm not sure there was much, much guidance in anything that they said, but the most useful advice he gave was don't die if you want to live a long life, and I thought that was probably true. In Australia, we're constantly on the lookout for the, the magic bullet to keep ourselves alive longer. I'm not sure if that's the case in Singapore as well. But there are always, our our newspapers and our our social media is always full of new articles about diets that we should um, be embarking on, about avoiding salt, avoiding sugar, watching your BMI, whether there's good fat or bad fat. And most recently, in the last couple of months, there have been all sorts of articles about the horrors of something called ultra-processed food. I don't know if that's hit Singapore or not, but uh, ultra-processed food and the harm that it can do. And in Australia we invest an enormous amount in trying to make our bodies last. Uh, It's just something that we seem to be obsessed with in many ways. And yet we pay so little attention as a community to how to make our souls last. Uh, Even Christians, I think, we can pay so little regard to how to live long and well in the Christian life. And I'm sure that all of us know people, and they may even be close friends or members of your family, who began in the Christian life seemingly so well and then slid away from the Lord Jesus and are no longer following Christ. And we know the teaching of Jesus about the different soils and that for some the seed is planted and grows up and it's strangled by the cares of this world or by the attractions of this world. But it's unsettling still, isn't it? When we hear about someone who has succumbed to the wiles, to the schemes of the evil one, it's unsettling. (coughs) We find ourselves asking questions about, could that happen to me? How do I stand firm in my Christian faith? And that's really the topic of what Paul is talking about as he draws the letter to the Ephesians to a close. How do we stand firm and live long and well In the Christian life. His focus is on the armour of God. But he's talking about the armour of God because he wants the people of God to remain firm. Notice what he says in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Down in verse 11. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Down in verse 13. Stand your ground. And in verse 14. Stand firm. That's the focus of this section. How can I, as a Christian believer, stand firm in my Christian faith? And despite all of the animosity of the devil, despite all of the schemes of the devil, as Paul describes them, despite all of the flaming darts of the devil that may be sent my way, how can I stand firm and be strong in the Lord and live long? So that I reach that point on the final day when I hear those words well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into my rest. That's what we desire, isn't it? Isn't that your goal as a Christian? To make sure that the very last day, when you draw your last breath, that you are actually doing so as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And Paul here is giving us some very practical guidance as to how we might stand firm, despite the hostile world in which we live despite the struggle that is inside of us with our own flesh and despite the schemes of the evil one. Notice what he says in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. Notice that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What we are struggling against rather is the devil. What he calls in verse 11 the devil's schemes, and which he goes on to unpack in a little more detail in verse 12. Calvin says that Paul spends so much time in articulating these devil's schemes because Paul wants us to understand the seriousness of the threat that we face. See, too easy to dismiss out of hand what we can't see or touch or feel. And so because we can't see or touch or feel the evil one, we, it's very easy for us to neglect him, to not notice, to not be aware and not to stand firm. And so Paul details the threat of the devil so that we will not be complacent in the Christian life. He doesn't want to make us afraid. We are victors in Christ over Satan but he does want to make us alert. Notice what he says in verse 12, that that the devil and his forces are powerful. Notice how he describes them, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces. The scriptures tell us that the devil was defeated at Calvary, that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, once and for all defeated the power of of death over us, once and for all, remove the sting of sin. Satan's power was defeated at the cross, but nonetheless, the apostle wants us to understand and not to underestimate the influence of Satan today as he wages war still against the people of God. His defeat is sure and certain in the cross, but he wages war against you and I, and he is powerful. Don't underestimate him, Paul's saying. But he wants us to understand also the evil of Satan. Notice what he says, the powers, of us still in verse 12, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. There's a dangerous malevolence in Satan as he seeks his, our destruction. And so Paul wants us to understand that what he's about to talk about is serious. It's serious because we have one who is malevolent, And hostile to us, who doesn't want to see you continue in the Christian faith, who doesn't want to see you stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, but would delight to see you fall away from him. And so Paul says, I want you to understand that. I don't want you to underestimate the threat, but I want you to be confident nonetheless by putting on the armour of God. And then he lists six elements that make up a Christian's suit of armour. And then he adds a seventh essential, which is prayer. Of those six, you can there are three that he says you should put on, the first three, and they're really how we should live. And the second three are things to be taken up, and they are really in whom or in what we should put our trust. So we're going to look at those in two sets of three. How we should live, firstly and in whom or where we should put our trust or our confidence. Firstly, verses 14 and 15. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So three pieces of equipment that he says are essential for us as Christian believers if we want to be well-armoured, well-protected against the schemes of the devil. Truth, righteousness, and gospel readiness. Each focus on how we must live in in the face of spiritual attack. Firstly, we need to be men and women of truth, Now, the sense in which Paul's writing of truth here, I think, is in the sense of of truthfulness, sincerity, having integrity. We might say, that put it in terms of we must live truly. As Christians, we value, of course, truth. But what Paul is saying, there must be an integrity between the truth that we teach and the lives that we live. The alternative, of course, is hypocrisy. But no, says Paul, make sure that you stand firm with the belt of truth, with an integrity in the way that you live, so that you live a life which is consistent with the testimony that you give. Next he goes on to talk about righteousness. In Christ, of course, we are made righteous. It's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? That in the Lord Jesus Christ we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that when God the Father looks upon you, he sees all of the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says we must not only remember that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, but we must live that righteousness, that we must must live as the people that God has made us. We are made righteous by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded, Paul says, to be righteous, to live righteously, for the honour of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third thing he says is to, is to take on to your feet, so put on as shoes, readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Living a life of service, reaching out to people in love with the saving message of hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Three ways of behaving, Paul says. Living with sincere integrity, living lives that conform to the righteousness that God has already given us and living lives of service that reach out to others with the gospel. What Paul is saying is the best antidote to Satan is not something which is negative, but rather positive. The best antidote to Satan is to live a life of conspicuous holiness where you are centred on Christ and that way you will not give the devil a foothold against you. Notice what he says. You'll remember when you were going through Ephesians. Back in chapter 4, there are all sorts of commands from Paul about the kind of life that we as Christian men and women should be living. And in chapter 4, verse 22, he says we should be putting off our old self, but it's not just enough to put that off. It's not enough just to be negative. We must be positive also, put on something, put on the new self Clothe ourselves in the righteousness and the holiness of God. It's the same command that Paul has here in chapter 6. Notice what Paul, Paul's explanation in chapter 4 for behaving this way is. He notices in verse 27, he says, Live this way, live a life of holiness, live a life of integrity, live a life of service so that you will not give the devil a foothold. Right there in the middle of teaching about holy living is the reason for it. Don't give the devil a foothold. The best antidote to, the, to temptation is obedience. It was Aristotle, I think, who said that nature abhors a vacuum. That whenever you've got a vacuum, there is always pressure to fill that vacuum. If our lives are empty of consistent, holy, faithful, servant-like Christian living, then that vacuum will be filled by the devil. There'll be no resistance to him. If our lives, on the other hand, are filled up with holiness, with a consistent integrity, with a life that is given over to the service of others, there will be nowhere for the devil to gain a foothold. And so we will stand firm against his schemes. Put on these things, says the Apostle. The best defence to the devil is obedient, Christ-focused living. I want to ask you, is that true of you? Is Christian godly character high on your list of things that you pray for, that you work towards? that you strive for and hunger and thirst for. When you woke up this morning and you got yourself dressed, did you aim to put on holy living as you were putting your shoes on? Did you want to put on a life of service that reaches out for Christ into the lives of others? As you were buttoning up your shirt, Were you also thinking about how you might be able to be clothed in holy living in order that the devil might not have a foothold over your life? How much does holiness matter to you as a follower of Jesus? If you're struggling with temptation, don't simply say no to it. Say yes to obedience. That's what Paul says to the thief, doesn't he, in chapter 4. Stop stealing. There's the negative. But you notice he also has a positive, doesn't he? Get a job. Use what you earn to care for others and to be generous. He does it to the liar as well in chapter 4. Stop lying. Put off falsehood. But then he says, start speaking the truth. In verse 25, start speaking the truth to others. Put off the old. Put on the new, the best antidote to temptation is holy living. How committed are you to getting rid of sin in your life and putting on obedience? Billy Sunday was an American evangelist. Nowadays, most of us haven't heard of him, but uh, he was operating around the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century and he was hugely famous in the United States. He'd been a very, very well-known baseball player who had been converted to Christ and then became a full-time evangelist. His evangelistic uh, crusades were almost like road shows. He was a very flamboyant, over-the-top, dramatic, theatrical sort of preacher, He would strike poses on the stage. He would would walk all around. Sometimes he would smash furniture because he would get so excited. He'd stand on the chairs. But in his his preaching, he was always strong about getting rid of sin in our lives. Let me read to you one of my favourite quotes from a sermon that he preached. He said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go to glory. Is that how you see sin? You'll do anything to get rid of it. You'll never give in to it. Is that how you value holiness? Put on the armor of God, says says Paul. Clothe yourself in obedience. Clothe yourself in integrity. Clothe yourself in service. It is the best way of resisting the schemes of the devil. The next three items that we're commanded to take up are really where we the focus of where we put our trust. Notice verse 16, the shield of faith, which will extinguish the flaming arrows of Satan. The helmet of salvation, saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And the sword of the spirit, that word of God in verse 17, which gives us the promises of God on which we can take our stand. Where does your trust lie? Put your trust in God and his faithful promises, says the Apostle. Take up the shield of faith. Wear the helmet of your salvation, knowing that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Put your trust in God's promises, in his word. And in doing so, you will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. What are they? What's one of the most effective ways that Satan attacks the people of God? I probably don't need to tell you. The name Satan says it all, doesn't it? It means accuser. He accuses us. He seeks to condemn us by accusing us of our sin. And I'm sure that each of us have had that experience. God cannot forgive you, not knowing what you've done, God will never forgive you. How many times have you come asking for forgiveness for the same thing over and over? Is God going to forgive you yet again? Surely not. God would forgive most things, but surely he will not forgive that one. They're the words of the evil one, of Satan, of the accuser, coming to the people of God and accusing us wanting us to forget that in Christ there is no one to bring an accusation against us. Paul says take up the shield of faith in that situation when he accuses you. Paul says put on the helmet of salvation and remember that you're not saved by your works but you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Put your confidence in God's word Those promises that tell you that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those promises that say if Christ is for us, then who can be against us? Who would bring a charge? Who would accuse us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? You see, the schemes of the evil one who seeks to accuse us and to destroy our faith, they strike harmlessly against the shield of faith when we take up God's word and we claim the promises of our salvation and we put our trust in what God has said, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The great German reformer Martin Luther struggled throughout his life with these temptations. He doubted constantly whether God was good to him. He was racked constantly by the fear that he would be outside of God's mercy and forgiveness. And yet the way in which he combated it was to take hold of the promises of Scripture and to stand firm upon them. Take up the shield of faith. Put your trust in God. Put on the helmet of salvation. Know that you are saved, not because of your works, God knows your sin, but solely by Christ. Put your confidence in God's word and God's promises which give you assurance that if God is for you, then who can be against you? Notice finally Paul says in verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. That's the last thing. Put on prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is um, probably well known to many of us, perhaps all of us. He uh, had the insight in the very early part of Adolf Hitler's reign in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, he had the insight to be able to recognise the idolatry that was associated with Adolf Hitler and to oppose his regime. He was eventually imprisoned and uh, executed just before World War II ended. But the interesting thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he had not always been a Christian, In fact, Bonhoeffer had a PhD in theology before he got converted. Bonhoeffer was actually lecturing students in theology before he got converted. Bonhoeffer had been the pastor of a church before he got converted. He said up until his conversion, the doctrine of Jesus Christ was something which he sought to turn to personal advantage. But after he was converted, he said, for the first time I discovered the Bible... Every word a love letter from God. But what was the sign that Bonhoeffer was converted? Because you think about it, for a life of someone who's already studied theology, who's already pastored a church, who's already lecturing students for the ministry in theology, his life, and it was, was a consistent life. How could you tell that Bonhoeffer had been converted? There was one way Bonhoeffer began to pray. His students commented on it. They said Bonhoeffer would pray with us before the lecture and after the lecture, and he'd pray with us. The student ministers that he was training to prepare for Christian ministry noticed it. Bonhoeffer used to take for six months, he would take a dozen or so uh, future pastors. All of them had finished their theological training. Bonhoeffer would have them for six months to prepare them for pastoral ministry. While they lived together... He demanded that for half an hour every day they would spend it in prayer and reading of God's word alone. All of the students hated it. They said, we don't know what to do. One one student said that he wrote sermons because he didn't know what else to do in the half hour. Another student said he smoked his pipe because he didn't know what to do in it. The idea of prayer was foreign to them. They accused Bonhoeffer of being legalistic in demanding that they pray in that way. To which Bonhoeffer said, how can it be legalistic for a Christian to learn to pray? That is the very thing that we must learn to do. It's a sign, isn't it, of a regenerate life. When do we pray? Verse 18, on all occasions. What do we pray? Still in verse 18, prayers and requests of all kinds. But especially, notice what Paul says. Pray for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, verse 19. Pray. Pray for gospel workers. Pray for the gospel to go out and to be believed by many. Go back into Ephesians. You find some of the other prayers that Paul prayed that they would begin to grasp the vastness of God's love for them. Do you pray that for yourself? That you would begin to grasp how deep and wide and high and long is the love of God for you and the Lord Jesus, that it would take hold of you? Is that what you pray? Do you pray that for others? What a wonderful pr- protection against the evil one that is, to know the love of God for you. In the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a pastor, I had a friend in the congregation who used to regularly ask me, in fact, each time he saw me, he would say to me, Stuart, does the day find you a praying man? Does the day find you a praying man? I can tell you, if I knew I was going to meet him, the day did always find me a praying man. I knew that I was going to be held accountable, and that was a good thing. Does the day find you a praying woman? Or a praying man? Do you ever ask that question? Do you ask it of others? It's really the same of, have you put on the armour of God? Have you woken up this morning aiming to be righteous in order to protect yourself from the evil one? Have you woken up this morning with your confidence in God and his salvation and his promises that nothing can separate you from his love? Have you woken up this morning saying, today will be a day when I will pray? And in doing so, we will be protected, secure, safe against the savage attacks of the evil one. One of my daughters has loved animals all her life. In fact, all my children have loved animals all their life, but she brought home a sheep, a lamb, on one occasion. She was at university and uh, they had a flock of sheep And it was lambing time, and this little lamb had been rejected by its mother. And so my daughter brought it home in a cardboard box. It was like a little bag of skin with some bones rattling around inside. It was this tiny, scrawny, one-week-old lamb. The crows had been pecking it, and uh, it had uh, all these infected holes in its forehead. And so every night for months, my daughter would wake every two hours and would bathe the wounds and would add, put on antibiotic cream. The lamb went absolutely everywhere with her. It went to university lectures with her. It went on dates with her boyfriend with her. It would sit in a cardboard box in the front seat of her car. And everywhere my daughter went, the lamb was sure to go. When she moved to rural New South Wales, she had a few sheep by then. And uh, one day when she was at work, a savage dog got in amongst them and killed one of them. The others were injured but escaped but killed one of them, not the one she'd brought home that first time. He'd grown into a very large and muscular ram, but he was injured. And so she did what every good shepherd will do, did what the Apostle Paul, the shepherd, is doing here, set about protecting her sheep. And so she built a 10-foot-high fence around about a quarter of an acre of land. It was a high 10-foot mesh wire fence with curving at the top so the dogs couldn't climb over it and dug into the ground for a metre on one side so the dogs couldn't dig under it. And the sheep were put in there. Our family used to call it Fort Bar. But it was the only place where they were safe. On her wedding day, she wanted to be photographed with, uh, with the ram, Spetty. And I think we might have a photograph coming up. Uh, there she is, uh, with Spetty the ram. But notice in the background. Can you see the wire fence? Ten foot high, all the way around, protected at the ground, protected at the top. Because my daughter was a shepherd who wanted to make sure that her sheep were safe. The Apostle Paul is a good shepherd. He wants to make sure that his sheep are safe. And how does he do that? Well, he says this is how you build a 10-foot-high fence around yourselves. Put on the armour of God. Live a life of holy righteousness because the best antidote to the attacks of the evil one is a righteous, holy life. Put your confidence in God's word. Let it be like a shield that extinguishes the flaming darts of accusation that the evil one will bring against you. Put your confidence in that promise of scripture that God will forgive, has forgiven, and done it solely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure that the day finds you a prayerful man or woman. Someone who is committing to the Lord every day in prayer. And may the peace of God then possess your hearts and souls as you stand firm, strong in the Lord, protected and shielded by the grace and the mercy of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Good Shepherd and the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We thank you that you have laid down your life for us. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul as an under-shepherd of your people. And we thank you for the way in which he wrote under you of how we may protect ourselves against the attacks of the evil one. Father, give us grace to every day put on the whole armour of God that we might live lives of conspicuous holiness, that our confidence would be in your word as we store it up in our hearts in order that we might trust in the promises that you have made and that we might be men and women of prayer who are shielded by faith from all that the evil one might bring to us, confident and certain in the fact that we belong to you and that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love given to us in our Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to hold on to that, we pray. In Jesus' most holy name, amen.